and welcome to A Nightmare on Fear Street, a monstrous podcast about all things horror. If you like what you hear today, then you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Today, we're talking to Josh Rubin. Enjoy. So we are here with our final guest of the season, the actor-director, <laughs> star, producer, Josh Rubin. Yay. Ponytailed <laughs> cat man. How are you? It's Sunday, guys. You got to give me a break. I'm in tie-dye Ooh, ponytail and a feline in my lap. <laughs> pillow behind my head. <laughs> I, it's a great look. I, yeah. No, it Thank works. You. It works. So let's get started. So what we ask everyone, the first question is, what's your favorite scary movie? Oh, man. Um, I think my favorite scary movie is Dead by Dawn. I think, I think, um, I think Evil Dead, Dead by Dawn. I, I have been saying Jaws because it's not wrong, but I think Jaws is just my favorite movie. I don't consider it kind of, you know, the, yeah. the punchy uh, rainbow palette of, you know, horror movie. But I think, I think Dead by Dawn and maybe The Thing are sort of tied but I think Dead by Dawn's got the edge for the comedy. Ah, yeah. Which is, which is <laughs> it, it, that shows in Scare Me as well, the comedy and the horror and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite sub-genre of horror? Like, are you a slasher, a haunted house, zombie situation? I'm a creature feature person all the way from... Um, was it uh, J.D. Dillard's uh, uh, Sweetheart, you know, as recently as that, all the way back to, again, you know, Thing, um, The Thing, I should say. Um, I, yeah, I, I love a good practical effect creature kind of anything. I'm sort of a sucker for anything, anything practical effects. So I don't know if creature feature counts, but, you know, you, you give me a monster pick any day and I'm, I'm happy. Nice, nice. Awesome. So what drew you to horror? Like what, what's your horror origin story? Um, what drew me to it? I mean, my brother, my sister, specifically my sister, Rachel, she's nine years, my senior. I mean, they both are, they're twins. Um, they, uh, they, they were my intro to horror um, simply by nature of like sharing or just inappropriately introducing me to like Freddie and Jason, probably a bit too young. So I think I watched everything from Stephen King's Cat's Eye, you know, um, that awesome anthology was truly stuck with me um, from, you know, Cat's Eye to uh, like Dream Warriors and then back to the original, uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. I think, I think those were my, you know, the first films that I saw that really drew me in the imagery, the practical effects, the ridiculous, um, horrific nature of it all but I, for some reason some morbid reason i was hooked at an early age as, as i guess we all were i feel like it just it, especially That's, in the in the 80s right too there's just yeah. something about that like you know especially with the vhs era and everything else that deep between the cover art and then the practical effects and everything else it just there's just something about it that was just tasty as a kid i guess hit the cartoon palette right before cgi came around and ruined everything yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's not been the same. <laughs> Can you believe Spielberg went back in and like zhuzhed up E.T.'s ship? I just still can't. I can't get over that. Uh, That's a anyway. whole other podcast. Um, I know. I know. I know. I'm sorry. No. You're good. It, it was a choice for sure. Bold choice. Um, so when did you know you wanted to work in film? Like 
when was that spark? Um, when did I know I wanted to work in film? I guess uh, I would say probably somewhere between fifth and sixth grade. My, my parents had gotten me a video camera for my sixth grade graduation. I think it was like, like a camcorder. And um, I knew probably a bit a pinch before that. I'm not I'm not sure exactly what what was the you know the the keystone moment of it all. But I I was definitely very into making you know making films with my friends. I was obsessed with it with this with this little you know high eight cassette camcorder. Um, but I must have been you know 11 or 12 when it hit me hard. Awesome. And what was that? So from from there to now. Um, what was that journey like? So uh, walk us through that just a, briefly. Well, I was, uh, you know, uh, fairly friendless in elementary school and high school, but so I, but I did have my, I did have my camcorder and I had my two buddies, Jillian and James. I guess Jillian and James had make stuff with, you know, in early high school and then, uh, or you know, late elementary school and then in, in high school, um, I started making stuff with uh, my buddies Nick and Travis. Nick and Travis and I were kind of the outcasts of the Woodstock Youth Theater, so um, we we started making stuff, and then came the college conversation and me getting a 950 on my SATs. I was a terrible student, uh, and uh, <laughs> then came my not getting into any college that I auditioned for or applied to other than acting training program, and magically, the acting training program I did get into, I got into two. I got into like American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I got into the New Actors Workshop, and the New Actors Workshop was kind of the sort of lesser known one, but one of the instructors was Mike Nichols, and so I ended up, my parents ended up being convinced or I somehow had convinced them that you know I was the big fish in a small pond and hell I didn't get into any other academia um uh so I went to a two-year acting program in New York City and that that's where I kind of found my footing not only living in New York but just kind of meeting people that uh you know that were taking it as seriously or that were certainly more talented than I was and you know it was a big fish in a small pond in my town and then that turned into eventually starting to make videos and putting them on the internet. And that turned into college humor, taking a, a notice and that turned into directing commercials. And then the, the soullessness of the commercial field led me to be like, I have to make my own movie because no one's going to do it for me. I've got to carve out my own way. Um, and now I'm here uh, with a ponytail and a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> What is one piece of advice you would like to give to aspiring filmmakers, which is probably oh, a question man. you get a lot anyways. Uh, I do. And I'd love to answer it because, um, you know, when I was uh, fledgling or even before I even knew I wanted to do it, I was always kind of looking for that sort of advice. And first of all, aspiring filmmakers and creatives are in a better position now to make stuff than ever. Um, you're holding your camera I had to you know beg my my folks for something that could make movies for you know my elementary school graduation um that took cassette tapes and now you can film pretty much anything on your phone Soderbergh films features on the thing you're holding in your hands and texting on all day um so uh you know my I think the most important thing um advice I can offer up to any aspiring filmmakers to surround yourself with the people who want to raise you up and support you and who you get excited about raising up in return. Um, I'm 37 years old. and It took me a long time to realize who 
my real creative partners were, which also sort of folds into like who your real friends are um, and who might be taking advantage and everything else. So it really starts with your community that folds into like the whole thing about keeping people close to you who like, you know, who see that thing in you that you believe in in yourself and like don't want to, you know, dim your light that don't go out of their way to make undercutting comments or, you know, berate anything, even those like kind of icky little sort of comments that don't quite feel condescending, et cetera, et cetera. So it all has to do with, I start with, you know, as far as filmmaking or really anything is concerned, any endeavor, even if you're an independent solo working artist, keep people close to you that you trust and that trust you and that, you know, you would, uh, you would, you trust for them to take their jacket off and hand it to you in a rainstorm kind of a deal. And that folds into, you know, the creative side as well. Those will become the people that you'll send your work to first and, and trust that they won't, you know, put you down for it. That's really good. That's really good advice. Um, and and continuing on that, like advice road, uh, is there any like specific advice you would give someone that is going into a project, juggling all the positions that you had to juggle for scare me specifically like producer writer actor director all those things yeah i um i talked to um jim cummings who just directed wolf of snow hollow and had done uh thunder road by the time you know it had been about a year or so by the time that i i I did scare me and he wrote and produced and directed and starred in 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 both those movies but at the time it was thunder road and i i asked him just to kind of get my mind back into it um, or my mindset right for taking on a movie on my own as uh, you know, triple quadruple duty. And he was like, work hard, know your lines and be nice. Like these people are coming out for your vanity project, essentially like, don't be a dick, feed them well, keep them caffeinated, but you have to be the hardest working and most kindly collaborative person on that set and so that's that's my advice is it's never about you it's about the project it's about it's about everybody coming out for you and treating them well that's um, also a really good piece of advice for anything and anyone um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um so you do a lot of things which is part of the reason you're here <laughs> is there something you're more drawn to because like you do produce and write and act and direct and also had a podcast or have a podcast mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess these days it's it's directing. I think I'm most excited to direct uh, what I write so that I, I don't have to answer to anyone but myself. And also part of that privilege rolls into being able um, to give the, the creative forces in my life uh, empowerment to do the best and most creative job that they can. I can't control it when I'm hired as much as I I love to be hired to either direct something or even write something or be in something for somebody else I can't control how people are treated on a day-to-day basis I can just kind of be you know a shoulder if that's what it ends up being so I love the control of directing and not answering to a writer who might be frustrated by my bad decisions um I make bad decisions you know when I when I direct what I write sometimes too but um the, to have that freedom I think uh on on both sides or that holy would be would be great yeah not, and not to have anyone hold you back you know you can make your hell yeah yeah you don't have to yeah for sure um all right is there so 
we know your next project is Werewolves Within. Can you tell us anything about that? Uh, I can tell you that it's it's a script uh, written by Mishna Wolf, um, who's an incredible writer as part of Ubisoft's uh, Women in um, Women in Film and Television Fellowship Program at Ubisoft. So it was a total honor to pitch on it, let alone direct it, and um, that it's that it's a uh, sort of a supernatural whodunit. Um, and that's about all all I can say. Uh, it's fun as hell. The cast is incredible. Sam Richardson, Michael Chernus, Michaela Watkins, Glenn Fleshler. Uh, it's it's a it's an incredible cast. Cheyenne Jackson, Rebecca Henderson, Kathy Curtin goes on and on. Awesome. That's that's amazing. <laughs> Do you know what's after Werewolves Within? And can you talk about that yet? I can't uh, talk about specifics about what would be after Werewolves Within, but I, I can tell you that you know. Um, I'm working on two different series uh, and writing another, an outline of another film. I'd started writing or sort of polishing a film that I'd put down many moons ago that there was some interest in and also uh, have something uh, in the genre audio narrative, audio podcast, you know, narrative podcast world. I got to direct uh, Kevin Bacon and a bunch of awesome celebrities call. um, uh, uh, Rob Reiner and uh, Kira Sedgwick and um, Matt Walsh and uh, The Last Degree of Kevin Bacon about Kevin Bacon had sort of befriending his own stalker who felt uh, entitled to his career. Um, and uh, I'd be excited to do that in the in the horror space, especially having done, you know, work with sound design to the degree that I have in all my projects, but scare me specifically being so sound design forward. I'd love to do something in that world. So yeah, just yeah. after, after where it was, it could be one of four things or it could be something that comes in from left field. You just never know. You got to <laughs> follow what can put food on the table. Hey, there you go. There yeah. you go. <laughs> um, so is, how, if our listeners want to follow and get all the information on your net, on your projects coming up, where should they follow you? You can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. It's the same name, Josh Rubin on both, uh, R-U-B-E-N. And I put uh, as much as I can, um, I'll update my website, joshesmindhouse.com. So you can check that out. Awesome. Um, so we're going to segue into Scare Me as opposed to talking about you um, because that's part of the reason you're here is because like you have this like really awesome movie and it's hitting video on demand Tuesday. Is that math? Yes, that's math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, first question specifically about Scare Me. Um, is it true you used your 401k to fund this? Because I have sub questions depending on that answer. What? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, so a um, little bit of, little bit of back, a little bit of context. I, you know, I joined College Humor, which is IAC, under, under the IAC banner, Barry Diller's banner um, in 2000, uh, 2008, and I left in 2013. I think that math works out to about six, seven years there. Um, so I had, for the first time in my life, a you know, quote unquote, proper 401k. And again, you know, working in this business, no one's gonna, no one's gonna spoon feed you success. You've got to sort of invest in yourself. And so my sort of pact with my cinematographer Brendan in making my first really anything movie was uh was that I would partly fund it if that's what I had to do that what I did take out of my 401k not completely emptying it out but about 25 grand worth was uh 
uh, what it did was show people that I was serious. And so that turned into the first producer board just personally matched that. And then for that number to go to the next investor and say, not only do we have this, but we have Aya Cash now, who's um, you know, a friend of uh, I've known her husband for many years. And so to kind of, you know, go to the most famous person um, in my circle and say, would you like to do this experimental thing? Um, and so the package kind of grew from there. So yes, I, I didn't empty it out, but I did partially fund it um, because you know, it's the sort of risk that you hear about a lot of filmmakers taking. Um, the same risk, you know, can be applied to leaving your hometown to go to Los Angeles or to go, you know, move to New York City and um, take the financial risk to, you know, find fame. Yeah. I guess. Uh, and um, you know, with my my years of mass as a you know filmmaker and connections that I made, I thought, okay, well, I think this risk will warrant a return at least at some point a and then b the fact that it's a genre film you know in our our community the horror community is very forgiving and very experimental or willing to experiment take a chance with um, with genre films was um that was the the risk uh, or helped sort of you know fuel the risk i was willing to take like okay well at least maybe we'll make a little bit of money on the back end because all horror fans will try almost all and you know anything horror even if it's you know poopy <laughs> <clears throat> that's an industry term right. <laughs> so one of our favorite things about the film was a lot of the more feminist um undertones and comments that the film was making and you've mentioned before that you were writing this while watching like the all the hollywood celebrities um, outing these toxic men at like the me too movement um, when you started writing it, did you did you set out to write a feminist horror comedy, or did that just kind of organically happen as you were writing? Uh, I knew that I wanted to explore the gender dynamic, the very specific gender dynamic of a call it fractured um, white thirty-something male, American male, feeling entitled to a woman's greatness or woman's success, especially in that field especially if, you know, he wants to be Stephen King. It's one thing if you're competing with other men, but the competition, the intergender or extra gender um, dynamic is really, really interesting and icky. And I was really excited to explore that. Is it something that I've seen in a lot of people in my industry um, and noticed even just the sort of molecules of feeling in myself? And I think that's just the construct or the um, societal norm that men are brought up into when you grow up you're going to take care of your children and your woman with your job um, and so we're not quite used to feeling um, what real feminism is and will translate to so anyway I didn't seek out necessarily to make a feminist film I wanted to make a film that felt like the fun horror anthologies a rewatchable punchy you know, comedy horror that I would watch as a kid that would elicit those same feelings as, you know, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, or, you know, Cat's Eye, or, you know, whatever. Freddy's Dead, that same sort of sense of wicked humor and the like. But the engine for me was how kind of angry I was that there was a lot of male silence in my corner and that I was being warranted or um, lauded as an ally um, when all I was doing was Instagram sharing, which was the bare minimum. And yet I was, you know, one of the loudest in my corner, simply not only engaging in men and women, conversations with men and women, mostly in DM 
about my frustration that regardless of what the conviction netted out with that Aziz Ansari was out of the way he was and certainly the wine scene was and Kevin Spacey and on and on. So I was angry and that's a really good feeling to have when you write because you, you know what you, um, you know what you're sort of the, the, at least the spirit of kind of what you're writing about. Jordan Peele was just talking about it too. He's like, you know, you have to be willing to expose what you're vulnerable about and for, and I was, uh, you know, feeling vulnerable for that position and for the women in my circle who had been following me since I'd worked at college humor, which is a very male oriented, you know, site. And, um, and just in, you know, just being a quote unquote ally, someone who listens. So ultimately it just netted out. I think it happened very fast because I was, I was saying something and angry about a very clear thing that was happening in the world. And it has a quote unquote message, I guess you could say that way. Yeah. Because, like, first off, Aya Cash is just magic. But <laughs> you've given yeah, her a character that we don't typically see written by men, which is part of the reason why I was like, wait, I think we have to do something with this movie trip. <laughs> I was like, I think we have to talk about this. Just because uh-huh. so I feel so often I we start watching things that we tuck away in our brain that it's just, like, not for us because there's going to be mistreating of like people of color specifically women of color or what have you and so it was it was a weird choice to be like I see Chris Red and I see Aya Cash and I don't hate this I actually I have questions and I want dialogue (laughs) and I want more of this so can you talk about just like how you go about as an ally writing something and making sure you're not offending the people who you're wanting to like include in these movies and conversations well, it starts with um, it starts with a a willingness to simply be collaborative. So it goes back to that thing of like your community, right? Um, bring aboard people that you support, that you want to support, that you feel happy supporting. And you know, for me, I'm not going to ask Chris Red or Aya Cash or Rebecca Drysdale, for that matter, to come do my vanity thing where I'm triple threat on all these, you know all these duties and then micromanage. So it first starts with, are you interested in this? And, um, and, uh, uh, and then sort of saying, you're not gonna be a puppet. The script is yours to sort of do with it what you will. I didn't know that Chris was gonna come in or whoever was gonna end up playing Carlo. Um, I didn't know that Chris was gonna sort of make the decision to play him as kind of safe, sweet and innocent as he did and I wasn't about to stop him and say, no, make him feel more like he works in this small town service industry. It's like, no, that was a brilliant choice to make because he is a bookworm and he's a big fan of this author. Notwithstanding Carlo's total insulation in the way that Fred does not have any insulation, can't self-soothe and feels totally fractured in the face of this, you know, being third wheel to this dynamic. So, you know, I I think it has a whole lot to do with just giving people, in this case, Aya and Chris, the freedom to make it their own. And then, and this is not my place to say this or expound on, but I'll just leave it at this. You know, one of the best compliments I got from Chris beyond him saying, I love this film and love this script was I never felt like the black character. Well, I I didn't, I, I never want to, especially as a white filmmaker and not a lot of white filmmakers feel this way, believe me. I don't want to whitewash anything that I did. 
and ever do because I'm in the privilege to bring aboard not just diversity, but to give people the opportunity to do things that they don't often get to do. It's part of why also I didn't want there to be a sexualization of my, um, of my actress. I didn't want to there to be um, a, a romantic interest. I've seen that before. Let's make it about something else. So where, where I can and where I have the privilege to say and have say about my actors, you know, I'm going to exert that kind of, you know, creative control and, and, uh, and, and spread. I continue to, and even, even just two weeks ago, polled Twitter for women. Um, and I inappropriately used the term women identifying because anyone who identifies as a woman is a woman, I'm still learning. Um, but, but I wanted to make it not traditionally, let's say feminine, only women, like women who were women. But anyway, women who, um, women who might be great in a fresh horror film, give me them all. And I got what, 53 names of incredible people that I hadn't heard of before. Um, and including some folks who came out, which is what I wanted as non-binary and also, you know, um, which is what I, I guess I'd intended to kind of ask for. But anyway, I, and, and, you know, it's my intention to, for whatever project I can or have creative hand in to give folks that I hadn't heard of an opportunity to do things if they will serve the story well. You know, that is, that is the privilege that I can, privilege to power, right? That I can, I can exert. So um, if, you know, if I'm one of the few people doing it, great. If I can inspire others to do the same, even, even better. Love that. Um, one of our, I, it's not even a question from our listener. It's a statement. It's about that tweet <laughs> that you just mentioned. I'll so take I'm it. excited when we get down there. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I've always wondered this when I watch films that were the director, producer, writer is also the star in the film. Was there a difficulty in switching from performer brain to create the, I mean, performers are creative as well, but you know what I mean? Like in front of the screen and behind the, the camera, was there a difficulty in that or how did you navigate those two positions? This goes back to the community thing, right? So my, my cinematographer, Brendan was my second set of eyes. And, and so we had a code for, if I don't do great during a take, the code is, you sure you don't want another one? You know, he was the <laughs> only one who was ever looking at the viewfinder. And I rarely had time, if any time, to, to review takes. So unless I was, you know, behind, off camera reading with Aya and Chris, I would usually just see an Instagram, an Instagram, a, uh, a uh, smartphone image of the viewfinder of the frame. And I'd say, okay, make it a little more symmetrical or asymmetrical or higher or lower. Brandon would show me on his phone. He'd literally take a picture, a screenshot of the monitor and show me. Um, so that was sort of part of how I would do it technically on top of the fact that the whole thing was shot listed. Um, we did storyboard certain moments, but Brennan and I shot listed the 280 shot movie um, uh, two months in advance of even knowing where we were gonna shoot. We were so excited to do it. We wanted to be super buttoned up, didn't want to have any disagreements, wanted to mitigate any confusion, keep communication as clear as possible. So it has a lot to do with preparedness certainly but but um you know to do the triple threat thing you need to trust your creative collaborator the other director sometimes it's your ad like for me like on werewolves even though i wasn't on camera like lenny pan who's been my my you know my first ad on a few projects now 
Um, he has brilliant ideas. So we also turn to these folks to say like, you know, or listen when, you know, they will support the story. Um, but as far as navigating, you know, that, uh, yeah, the, the, the tripling of, of duties, it's, it's, you know, just bringing folks that you trust. Awesome. Um, so we talk a lot on this podcast about how genre is very murky, <laughs> especially when it gets into horror, because you have like these sub genres of sci-fi, like is Alien a horror movie? Is Jaws a horror movie? and people argue forever. Um, and one of the things I think that we both really love about Scare Me is that it sort of blends this horror humor situation in a very unforced manner. Um, does that come from your background in comedy or does that come from you just as a kid being drawn to like a horror that makes you laugh or has other gifts? Uh, just so I understand the question, so you're saying the, um, uh, and thank you, uh, the, the humor of it all or the yeah. horror of it all, um, that tone not being too, yeah. too forced? It was never forced because a lot of horror movies that want to be funny or want to be something else was sort of like forced right. it at you. And this never right. felt like that. The laughs were very natural and unexpected. And so we're like, the, oh my God, am I afraid? It was never like, yeah. I'm supposed to laugh here and I'm not going to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that... I think that plays into a, 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 a rule that uh, I think it was Kathy Hendrickson, my, one of my acting teachers back from back in the day who had such a great phrase that I think she may have, she may have learned the verbatim from another instructor, but it's a don't get caught trying to be funny um, is, yes. is such a great, it's such a great sentence. I kind of use it for, for everything, even when I'm you know pitching comedy commercials or whatever. And that, that rolls into, you know, my kind of, directing style and, and how I want to support actors has come from a grounded place. I, that, that rule applies to the sound design and to the score of the movie, because by nature of it all, you know, we're, we're three comedic actors are doing these sort of comedic things. Let's take the sound very seriously. What would it really sound like if there was something lumbering up the stairs or if, you know, X, Y, or Z were sort of happening in the soundscape? As far as the, the, the humor, yeah, it's, you know, again, it's, it's also mostly casting. You know, Aya was wonderful and that she was, the, you know, the first to come and say, I'm no sketch actor. I don't do a Crypt Keeper impression. I'm going to try. Um, but she has, you know, impeccable comedic time because I'm so good at it because she comes from this incredibly grounded place, you know, with her background. Chris was, you know, um, born with comedy in his bones and knows how to do it in his bones in his sleep. And so as the director, you just kind of provide them with the, the boundaries we're into work and then, you know, um, uh, give them the freedom to make them feel comfortable in the space to, to play. And then if it becomes too much, you simply just, you know, you pull it back or you, you edit it out if it feels like they're getting caught. I bet that was a fun um, filming experience with all the comedic actors around. <laughs> Lots of laughs. It was great. <laughs> it was great. It was great. I mean, mainly because they're just wonderful people and because I and Chris absolutely loved each other. And it, <laughs> that helped with the third wheel dynamic for, for Fred, you know, to be kind of like jealously looking at them. Um, and you, you kind of talked about this earlier, but specifically, so we don't want to spoil anything, but your character, Fred, is the only cis hetero white guy that we see in the whole movie. And that's a rare thing for any genre, but especially in horror. Was that a writing thing or a casting decision? 
I suppose it was a it was a bit of both. It was certainly in casting. It again goes back to wanting to be as 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 inclusive as I could and knowing too that at the very least in the in the writing of it all that I had I had I had known that I certainly didn't want if Bettina wasn't a person of color, if Bettina looked like me, that I didn't want Carlo to look like me. You know, there were there were other names too for Fanny. Um, and then two, I wanted to make sure that it, it did feel appropriate that that Fred and Fanny were white because they are both in this sort of unlikable place of privilege. <laughs> and I and I didn't want the dynamic to I didn't want it to be dissected. Um, I had a I had a, a myriad of actors and actor buddies that I had sort of imagined in that position. I think as I think as far as the dynamic is concerned, I think it's it's well warranted where it doesn't where it wouldn't get dynamic if it were, you know, me and whatever Natasha Rothwell. I think I, there would be a risk of another kind of um, another conversation that I think would be unintended, that it just wouldn't wouldn't have felt kind of, I don't know, I guess um, uh, story appropriate for where, where things kind of netted out. But anyway, it um, I, it's just, it's it's mostly, I suppose, in casting, but in, in this case, it was a bit of both. I, I knew that in uh, in writing it, um, I, I, I just don't want that kind of a cast. I don't want it to look like, you know, Valentine's Day. <laughs> I don't want it to be love actually, you know what I mean? Um, because because i can help it and it's like come on that's just not what things look like it's not what the world not what our world is that's not what the world is like it's not what the world is like let's give give everybody a chance you know preach to the choir (laughs) um while we're here with fred fred is not your typical horror movie lead who has all the answers and can do no wrong Um, and I think that's one of, I think that's one of the reasons why this movie works so well is because oftentimes you don't get these human characters. You get this person who's going to save the world. Um, and so what drew you to like writing that character and wanting to embody that particular character? I, um, I was more or less writing what I know. I know Fred and I know my insecurities as a writer and I know, men I've worked with like Fred. Um, I know women I've worked with like Fred, um, but men, I, men who, uh, who like him and in my lower moments like him um, never had all the answers and in a way that's sort of more squirmy and fun to play. So that to have a kind of ambiguous uh, sort, of, uh, sort of a character. So um, yeah, I suppose I just thought it would be a lot more colorful. And to your point, you know, we've, we've seen the aforementioned before that's also this just not who I am. I don't think I could comfortably play that. I like more playing with a rubber nose or just, you know, playing from a place of discomfort as a character than, you know, being um, Tom Hardy with all the answers and the machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so we've talked a lot about like what we've taken from the movie, but what do you want audiences to take away when they're finished watching Scare Me? I want them to think it's a Halloween classic. They'll pop on every Halloween season. I want them to feel a bit of escape watching it. I want them to have a laugh. I want them to sing the song. I want them, you know, to, if, if it, you know, it's icing on the cake, if people can have a conversation about why Fred was coming from where he was coming from, um, the ambiguity of sort of, 
you know, all the characters or, or what ambiguity there is and what warrants certain behaviors and the like, and, and you know, maybe a conversation about gender dynamics, um, what, you know, dissecting it. I, I, I think that would, that would be wonderful. Um, but mostly just to have something that, you know, they, they consider uh, interesting and, and escapist for them in the time that we're in, in our, in our world or at any point in their life where they just want to, you know, get, watch it, watch I, uh, you know, do that magic, you know, watch, watch Chris, like act out, you know, the murders that would occur in the night. Um, Cause it's a perfect night for killing each other. <laughs> As he says. <laughs> I love that line. Yes. So those are our questions. We're going to get to some stuff from our listeners. Some of which are just statements. (laughs) We're going to give you verbatim what we've picked up from the social medias. Uh, Okay, great. Let's kick it off with Mr. Ben Wint. So stoked. Three exclamation marks. I have a question. (laughs) With an anthology movie like this that tells multiple short stories and one larger story, where did the writing start? Were there a bunch of little ideas that needed connective tissue or did it start as two writers try to scare each other? And then that larger story needed smaller stories. Huge fan, I'll uh, take my call off the air. Oh, incredible. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, caller. Um, uh, it was more the latter. Um, I knew I wanted to be about two writers scaring each other. I knew I wanted to kind of have the um, selfish acting experience of working with an actor or actors that were like really listening and really fun and um, that I, I could learn from A, but B, those stories um, were kind of the afterthought. I was dusting cobwebs off of older ideas that I had. And also, you know, like, like Venus, for example, that was, you know, based on a script I'd written 30 pages of and kind of got stuck or just writing to um, our strengths. What's what's I as best showcase? What's my best showcase? I like to walk like a troll and do this voice. You know, I can do this physical humor. Can do you know this? You know, speak Russian, whatever it is. So sort of retroactively. So the, the stories, the anthology stories, kind of came afterwards. They were sort of the um, they were the uh, the beads and the necklace. The thread was the you know the through line of them wanting to scare each other. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this question is from Twitter and it's from Tyler Boo 31. And um, I'm, I'm interested to hear the answer to this. Was Fred just kidding? Uh, Fred was roughhousing. Fred is again, uh, a fractured, uninsulated 30 something white dude in America who had a bit too much to drink, who feels unheard and fractured at the end of a night. And uh, that's a dangerous position that some, uh, some of these, um, well, that women find themselves in at the hand of a lot of men like him, but it was, uh, it was roughhousing. It, it went too far. I don't think he intended to, to hurt her. I, I think if we did, if he was a light switch psycho, he would never be getting calls from Meredith. Um, Meredith wouldn't exist. And um, you can kind of hear him allude to, you know, Fanny wait, you know, he doesn't want her to run away. Um, but he does want to be successful the way that she was successful all night effortlessly. He's then got to use his voice and chest pound. Yeah. And then, you know, when there's an accident, the first thing he, you know, he says is look what you did. He blames her. <laughs> Ain't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. How male. We've never heard that before. 
so many layers like when tyler boo asked that question i was like thank you because that answer is going to lead to like 19 layers depending on which answer it is so yeah yeah also from twitter no one can be trusted asked any plans for a physical media release yeah march 2021 that's awesome extras and currently you can check out the itunes package or once we're released which i think is today yeah, you can check out some of the great uh, extras that uh, that we've got. And yeah, good stuff. Okay, another one from um, Twitter. This is from Hey underscore Shotzi. It says, not really a question, but please tell him that his Jeff Bridges and crazy heart impression makes me laugh so hard it hurts me. <laughs> Buddy. <laughs> yeah, hey, man. Sh- Hey, Shotsky literally posted a reel of just 12 minutes of you doing impersonations. So we'll see it. (laughs) Better understand. I'll never live it down. (laughs) But I also put it out there in the world. So I did it myself. I dug my own grave. The internet is forever. Um, And hey, Shotsky appreciates it. (laughs) Um, Our Instagram question comes from Julie Ray Mullenkamp who says, cool. Since he asked on Twitter, please tell him I am a funny, fat, 59-year-old woman who would kill to be in a fresh, weird horror comedy. Time to shake things up. Hell yeah. Love (laughs) it. Bring it on. Let's do it. She will find you. I know her. (laughs) (laughs) Heaven. Good. Yay. That is all that we have, but do you want to tell the folks where to find Scare Me on Video On Demand Tuesday the 15th? I I assume it's everywhere uh, everywhere you can rent you can rent movies and if it's not that's would be that'd be a big surprise to me um, <laughs> but uh, not only um, will you be able to rent Scare Me on Demand check out all the awesome extras behind the scenes stuff um, some outtakes you will also be able to purchase the single uh, feel the music feel the light get ready for some serious evil. Uh, fully mastered from Chris Maxwell and Phil Hernandez of The Elegant Two is sung by Annie Kruger. Lyrics by yours truly and um, enjoy it. Play it a hundred times just like, you know, the South Park soundtrack as yes. I intended. That is my next purchase. <laughs> and there'll be some cool album art as well. Oh man, thank you. <laughs> That's exciting. That's, that, that, yeah. that, yes, I'm ready for that. That makes me happy. I didn't know how much I needed that single until you said I could have it. And now I'm just like, who do I give my credit card to? Who and when? Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy. Thank you. Um, Thank you for giving up your Sunday for us and our listeners and for this movie, which we really, really liked. I've I've spent a lot of time watching it. I'm not going to get into how much time because that gets weird, but I've seen it a few times. (laughs) Um, See, that makes, that is not weird at all. That's so flattering. It makes me so happy. That's exactly the kind of movie I wanted to make was something people can watch a few times and not get tired of. So that makes me very happy. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. All right. Yes. Thank you for coming on and and giving us some some time and answering some burning questions. <laughs> I'm so glad you found it interesting because Ruby is totally passed out. So <laughs> she does not give a shit. Yeah. Um, well, guys, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. This was awesome. Totally. Great questions. Thank you. Hard hitting journalism. That's what we're here for. Like. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
All right, everyone. So that was our conversation with Josh Rubin. Make sure you check out Scare Me. It's a really fun ride, really fun movie. Make sure you check us out next week for our season finale with the 2019 version of Black Christmas. Stay fierce out there. Bye.